16 and a half years or so ago, I stood probably right about here as I officiated what was for me my very first vowel renewal ceremony for a couple that was celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. Um, they didn't have a, a formal wedding ceremony their first time, so we tried to do it upright with their kids and, and all of that. And, and during that ceremony, I said these words. I said, the beauty of this day is that we gather in gratitude for what has become, as opposed to what we typically do in gathering for the anticipation of what is to come. Right? It, it was a special occasion. And when I asked them to repeat their vows... Um, they did so with a depth of feeling that is less common when young adults do that at younger ages. Not that there's any less commitment, not that there's any less feeling about it, but you realize that for this couple, when they repeated those words, they'd had 25 years of living it, 25 years of experience. 25 years of struggles, 25 years of the joys, 25 years of, of winning and losing and getting knocked down and getting back up, 25 years of cheering on, 25 years of challenges to their love when they said the words to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer for sickness, or in sickness and in health. During that time, one of the two of them were, was experiencing some very significant health challenges. Since that time, the other has gone through a cancer where there was very little chance of their survival, and yet, by the grace of God, they are still with us. I've sat in hospitals in nursing homes, and I've sat in some of your homes um, during very difficult times when we have talked about and reflected on not knowing at the time of our vows just what it would mean when we said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And we've noted there was a good thing that we didn't. <laughs> good thing we didn't know what was coming because there are some challenges that we might not have even pursued if we knew the pain that would involve, even though there have been incredible blessings along the way. And, and those conversations almost always end up with a reality check where we proclaim or we share where we at least affirm that at the time we needed it, God gave us just what we needed to be able to live out those vows that we took. Now, God made a covenant with a nation, the people of Israel. And like a husband takes a wife, or a wife takes a husband, God took Israel to be his own. Okay? But as opposed to us, there's this huge difference. Okay? God knew in advance the pain that would be involved. God knew in advance the rejection that would take place. God knew in advance the infidelity that would be involved. And just how one-sided this love relationship 
between him and his people Israel was going to be. Now Drew took us through Nehemiah 9 last week in a great way that, that not only traced the history of God's relationship with his people, in a way uh, it reminded us of the reality that the people of God in Nehemiah's day has disco- had discovered that, remember, that we are never too far gone for God? That's where we meet them in Nehemiah. So in this time of nat- national confession that we see in that chapter, okay, we'll see that the, the people find themselves needing to renew their vows, needing to say to God, I do all over again, if you will. So I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. You can turn there in your Bibles. You can open up your Bible app. If you look down and in front of you, you'll notice we put the Bibles back in the chairs and you can grab one of those Bibles. Um, My style is that typically the main text that we have, I do not put on the screen because I want you to find that yourself in your Bible, either remember how or learn how or however that works. But I'm still going to do that for another couple of weeks here. But there's a Bible there in front of you. you want to grab and turn to Nehemiah 9. And last week, as we moved through Nehemiah 9, he was tracing the history of not only God and his people, but also of the compassion of God to be faithful to his people even when his people were unfaithful to him, right? And so we came to the end of chapter 9, and what we're going to find throughout chapter 10 is that we're going to see God's people engage him with a responsive commitment in response to his compassion, in response to his love. In light of it, Nehemiah is going to describe um, the people's response. So in light of his compassion, in light of God's grace, in light of his forgiveness and his patience and his love and his righteousness and his faithfulness and his provision, in light of all that, the people respond. Look at verse 38 of Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah writes, In view of all this, that's a big statement, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. And then in chapter 10, if you flip the page or or write on, there's a list of those who are making the commitment, including their their leader or their governor, Nehemiah. And they're listed in those first 27 verses. And look down at verse 28. And it says, The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. Together together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to, to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands regulations and decrees of the Lord our Lord okay so the confession that we read in chapter 9 is going to transition into the commitment of chapter 10 but it starts there in 938 where he says in view of all this now when you read 
through the sins of the, of the Israelites that we've read now in, in Ezra and in Nehemiah. Okay? When you sense the whole scope of their lives and, and how they've continued to abandon God, we might think that the people are responding with a commitment based on the sin of all of their people. Okay? Or we might think that somehow because of all they've acknowledged that they're trying to gain God's approval, okay? but they're not. They're responding to the repeated mercy of God, to the fact that God, in light of all those things, has still allowed them to make this commitment to him once again, to be in relationship with him, to come back and re-engage him. So God made the covenant... And he made this covenant with his people long before. The people of God here are making a binding agreement. Okay? They're agreeing to live according to the covenant that God had already established. I mean, they couldn't have asked for a better deal than the one that they got. It keeps drawing them back to God through an open invitation to change their lives, to engage God in life. And they simply knew that God's offer demanded that they respond once again. So God engaged them. God called them back to Jerusalem. He enabled them to build the temple. He enabled them to rebuild the wall. He enabled all these things because he was inviting them into relationship and they're responding to his offer. I think it's interesting. This is a very male-oriented society. We know that, the, the patriarchal society um, in this, that the commitments were not only made by the leaders, okay, the, those first 27 verses, but they were also made by every individual, as we read in verse 28, where it says, together with their wives and their sons and daughters who were able to understand. Okay? Now, I think the Bible teaches that we are all born with an inclination towards sin. What I don't think the Bible teaches is that somehow we are guilty of someone else's sin, that we are born guilty of the sins of those who went before us. And so when we become of an age here in Nehemiah chapter 10, when we are quote, able to understand, we become responsible for our own eternity. Right? That in the end, we all have to make a personal choice to follow God. We can't make it to heaven on the faith of our parents. We can't rely on the faith of our parents. We have to make our own choice. Well, my oldest son, Christopher, was very young because he grew up in our home and he was taught from a young age. When he was very young, he talked about wanting to make Jesus Lord of his life. Because he was young, his mom and I wanted to make sure that he understood the, the commitment that he was making and what that involved. And so... Um, we just said to, to put him off just a bit, just to see kind of how he responded to that. Now, he was very sharp, okay, but not manipulative. And just in a normal conversation, we were on vacation. It was in Florida. We were walking on the beach, and he said to me, Dad, he said, sometimes I could just feel so dirty because of my sin and like I can't get clean. Okay? Now, now, he wasn't understanding old enough to understand the commitment that that was, would involve. Okay? I have discovered that like at age 45, like I wasn't 
old enough to understand the commitment that would be involved in living for Jesus at age 50. But hindsight, what we discovered along the way was that even though his understanding of commitment would grow with time, his understanding of sin demanded a response. And so we have these people gathered here in Nehemiah chapter 10, and we have all the leaders, we have all the men, we have all the women, and all the sons and daughters, all the children who are able to understand. And it's interesting the commitment they make. I think that other piece is just really helpful as a parent, because we've got to grapple with those things. How do we pass our faith to our kids, and when are they ready? And I think it's just good insight for that. But notice back in Nehemiah 10, the commitment of the people here involved a curse and an oath to follow the law of God. It means they not only swore to live by live obediently to God, but they also agreed to be punished if they failed. Now that's when you know you're serious about your commitment, right? Not just I want the benefits, but I want the accountability that goes with this. And we know that this is where they were because when we read on in the text, we see that the people were willing to make some very specific commitments. So again, in chapter 10, we're going to read those, but like in our study of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, this, this ongoing life that's happening, we have watched some specific failures of the people of Israel that led to these spiritual cycles, some predictable behaviors that happen over and over again. And I want you to pay attention here in chapter 10 to how the commitments that they're making are in direct response to the sins of the people, the sins of their ancestors, and some of their own sins. And I think it's just worth noting that they are determined to correct their course. They are determined to live different lives than the people before them and different lives than the ones that they have lived to this point. So pick up with me in verse 30. It says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Okay? Now this particular thing has been a problem throughout both of these books and especially in Ezra chapter 9. Marrying people of other nations has been noted not just by all the prophets, but here in these books as a reason that God's people tend to leave him for other gods or the gods of these nations, these pagan nations. Then in verse 31, it says, When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Well, it's interesting when you read through chapter 10 and really verses 30 to 39 are all of these commitments. Some of them are specifically what we read in the law of Moses in the original covenant. But some of them, like here in verse 31, are adjustments to the covenant. And the reason is because Israel as a society, Jerusalem as a city, Judah as a territory, it's changed. When Moses first gave the law, it was just the people of Israel. So they agreed with one another that we're going to agree with God and this is how we're going to live. But because things have changed, many of them were conquered and dispersed throughout. And you remember we talked about in the beginning of the series how, how 
the nations that conquered them backfilled the land with other peoples that they had conquered. And so now the people of Israel are living in the middle of and amongst other people who have no problem buying and selling on any day. They have no loyalty to the Sabbath as their custom. They have no allegiance to God as their God. And so as a result, um, the commitment of God's people here in Nehemiah is reflective of what it would look like to honor God's covenant in a current time in Nehemiah's day. A contemporary version, if you would, of an age-old law that even if the people around them were buying and selling on the Sabbath, that they would not. They would, as was originally intended, they would be faithful to God's plan. Now, it's not new news to any of us that our society is changing at a very rapid pace. And we've got to change our personal lives to adapt. And we've got to change our church ways to adapt as well. One of the core values of our church reflects this truth where we say that we've got to use flexible methods without changing the biblical message. The message is the same. God's standards are the same, but we've got to apply God's timeless standards to a world that is in a constant state of change. We, as God's people, we can't, we can't drive into the future with our eyes fixed on that rearview mirror looking back. God wants us to be contemporary with him in our church to be effective in our day and time. Verse 31 continues. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and we'll cancel all debts. You'll remember that refusing to cancel debts as God commanded was a huge part of Nehemiah chapter 5. And you may remember from earlier in the series that their refusal to give the land a Sabbath rest as God had commanded was part of why God allowed them to be conquered in the first place. In fact, the 70 years they were in captivity was one year for every Sabbath that they had neglected or that they had skipped. And then there are just a number of commitments in verses 32 through 39 that all relate to the bringing of offerings, different offerings, to the temple, culminating there in those words at the end of verse 38 or verse 39 which say, we will not neglect the house of our God. Okay? Now, spoiler alert, <laughs> in just a few chapters, and just a few short years, the people are going to fail again at keeping a number of these commitments. And we'll deal with that and, and maybe some of these when we get there in just a couple weeks here. But for us, okay, um, it underscores what we read in the New Testament, okay? that no one is perfect under the law, right? that no one obeys it completely. I think they were completely genuine in the commitments they're making here in Nehemiah chapter 10, and they're going to be completely unable to perfectly keep all of their commitments. But it's the, the frustration of imperfection that leads us to our need for Jesus. Okay, let's understand that. And needs, leads us to this new covenant of grace. The law was to teach us 
that we couldn't make it on our own. The law was to teach us that there was only one perfect, and that was God the lawgiver, that we were imperfect. Okay? And we live in an era of life, a relationship with God, that the prophets, it says in First Peter, the prophets only longed to see this era of grace, this era where God took care of all of the imperfections of his people. He paid the penalty. He sacrificed so that we could think about this. What's it look like to live and make commitments in an age of grace? That's where I want us to kind of camp out here on the end today. What's it look like to live and make commitments in our age? In the age of grace. Now the prophet Jeremiah looked ahead from his time. From the old covenant of law to how God would relate to us in this new covenant of grace. Through the work of his son Jesus. He wrote these words in Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Through the death of Jesus, the Son of God would come this new covenant. And one of the differences in the new covenant for the people of God is that we will now know him. We can know him and relate to him intimately. Okay? But having that advantage and living that advantage, well, they're two different things. And so we just ask ourselves some questions like, do you know God intimately do you spend time with him and enjoy that intimacy do you live in a true relationship with him where you take him everywhere you go and involve him in all of the decisions that you make as time goes on do you find yourself surrendering more of your life to his so that you begin to reflect his character so that you can accomplish his purposes so that the two can become one just like that husband and wife but us as followers of God do we are, are we laying down some of us so that we can be reflective of him I think that's the heart of what was happening here in Nehemiah chapter 10 and the heart of, we, of what we have to be considering ourselves. But, but let's remember about grace. Let's remember that grace itself is not something that can be earned. We don't approach God saying, if I could just get my life together, like I, then I would be acceptable to him. We can't say if I could just stop doing things wrong and start doing everything right, then somehow God might love me. No, in this covenant of grace, in this relationship that God invites us to, God loves you already. And Jesus has already paid the price to make us acceptable to him when he died on the cross. So if through faith you have accepted him, confessed him as your Lord, if you've repented of your sin, if you've been washed in the waters of baptism. The Bible says you are a new creation. 
You are his child. You belong to this new covenant. And listen, even if you live in intimacy with God, you are still no more capable of perfection than you were before. And then the people of Israel were. That's why this new covenant is a covenant of grace. That's why we make commitments not to earn God's favor, but as a response to that grace. We live our lives and we respond to him and we make commitments out of gratitude for what he's already done instead of in hopes of what he will do. Now, we still have hope of heaven. We still have hope of a better future. But your life today, you're making a commitment. You're letting him and inviting him and living out him being Lord of your life. That's in response, in gratitude for what he's already done. He can't love you any more than he loves you. Through the blood of Jesus, you cannot be made any more clean than you have already been made. We are perfect in his sight, even though we're not perfect in each other's sight. But Jesus has made us that way. And it's a beautiful and necessary thing because the more we grow as Christians, the farther we go along in our lives, the closer we get to him, the more we see our own imperfections and our own inadequacies and our own sin. You would think the further I went along, the better I would be. I have found that the further and the closer I get to God, the more I understand how much we're not alike. <laughs> because I see my life in view of his perfection. The closer we get to him, the more we need to stand in a place like that couple did with me 16 years ago and say, I do all over again. To renew our vows and say, God, I still love you, but man, it's a different kind of love than I knew back then. So much richer, so much deeper. Robert Robinson was born in England in 1735. At the age of eight, his father died. And he was a handful, more than his mother could handle. So she, she sent him off to England to learn a trade. And he grew up living a rough life and, and ended up hooking up with, with, with a bad crowd, right? Living a deviant lifestyle. Well, one night as a young man, George Whitfield was holding a revival in the town in which he lived. And so he thought he'd go to the revival, not to hear George Whitfield, but instead he and his friends just went to heckle him and to torment the crowd. And as Robinson says, that night George Whitfield preached on the wrath of God. He said, and for three long years that, that sermon haunted me until I finally gave my life to Jesus. He said, when I gave my life to Jesus, I almost immediately felt a call to ministry. And, and over the next number of years, he would pastor several different churches. He wrote several books on theology, and he penned a number of hymns as well. Well, one of those songs was the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Okay? And the song, it, it, it's a plea, a plea for the Holy Spirit to 
to fill us so that we can remain faithful in spite of our wandering hearts. Well, Robinson had a wandering heart. And later in life, he he strayed from the faith. And then one day, he was sitting next to a woman on a stagecoach. And that woman pulled out a book. It was a book of hymns. And she didn't know who was sitting next to her. But she started to explain to this man next to her how much she loved this particular hymn, Come Thou Found. And after a period of silence, this is how Robinson responded. He said, Madam, I am the unhappy man who wrote that hymn years ago. And I would give anything to discover the joy I had back then. Well, the beautiful part of the story is that God used the words that he wrote all those years ago on that day to, to draw him to repentance and restore him to fellowship with this God of grace. Now, you might remember the words, the most popular ones to that hymn. In fact, you might even resemble, like the rest of us, the words to that popular hymn when he wrote, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, will take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Well, maybe today you need to embrace this Jesus. This God of grace and admit that on your own (laughs) that you can't be perfect. You're just not. And on your own you can't pay the price to make your sins right. But you know one who can. And maybe today is the day for you to embrace this Jesus, I would just encourage you to do it today. Some things don't need to be put off. But perhaps today you need to renew your vows. You need to meet Jesus again. We've lived a lot of life, many of us, since we came to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And there's a different depth of meaning and experience much like my son when he was so young as he's grown up you understand there's a whole different level of commitment that comes with living for Jesus I mean we've long long since given up perfection haven't we (laughs) we've long since discovered um, that the darkness of our sin nature was even deeper than we knew or understood at the time. Do the words, I take him as my Lord and Savior. Made today, do they mean more to you than they did then? And would you say, I do, I will, to God all over again? Stop wandering. Come home. Do it today. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Um, I'm going to invite you if you want to have a conversation of that. I'm just going to kind of move to that back corner. And as people are dismissed, if you'd like, just come. And myself, one of our leaders, will be outside as well just to have a conversation about what it looks like to be right with God on this 
very day. Let's pray together. Father, we, we would still say I do to you. Certainly, we still need the cross. We need the blood of Jesus to cover our sins. We need to be made new. We thank you that through Jesus, all that is not only possible, but that's the reality we live in. And so, Lord, we as the people in Nehemiah's day come to you again today to choose you, to choose your way, to choose obedience, to choose Jesus and his death on the cross. Lord, may it continue to mean so much to us and show itself in our lives and our choices, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.